The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. Heath Carter. Heath is the Associate Professor of American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's also the author of several books, including an upcoming book, on earth as it is in heaven. He, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be with you. Now, I guess we have to start with probably uh, the most pressing question. Um, Was your house one of the houses being raided by New Jersey police for hosting such a large house party? (laughs) It was not. It was not. No, we have been uh, very cautious here in the Carter, uh, Carter household, but no, some of our some of our neighbors uh, have been uh, called out by the. I don't know if you know anything about the the New Jersey State Twitter account is very funny and uh, has definitely given some of my neighbors who have been a little less cautious a pretty hard time. <laughs> That's yeah, uh, yeah. I, I imagine a lot of that reporting is uh, somebody ratting on somebody else, and uh, you know that might come back to bite them later on. But um, you know, yeah. more serious <laughs> note, uh, you know, what, what's this COVID experience been like for you personally? 
Yeah, well, we, you know, obviously, uh, as a kind of awareness of the pandemic hit in March, um, we were headed on to spring break here at, at the seminary and had to kind of scurry really quickly to figure out, you know, how we were going to manage that. And um, so ended up basically extending spring break a week to give people a chance to to move their courses entirely online. So as you can imagine, that was that was really challenging and working with students who were in very different, um, you, know, ex- you know, having very different kinds of experiences, you know, spouses losing jobs. And so having to uh, take on new work themselves or, or in some cases, you know, tragically uh, folks lose, you know, relatives lose, losing their lives um, to the virus. So, um, you know, it was, it was a challenge, but we kind of made it through the spring. And I think this summer for a lot of my colleagues, I'm, I'm on sabbatical this coming year, but a lot of my colleagues the summer has been, um, in a very different way than usual, kind of consumed with teaching prep. Uh, normally we get to take the summers to kind of work on our research, but um, this summer, you know, as we prepare for the whole seminary to be online this this coming academic year, a lot of my colleagues have been spending a lot of time figuring out how do I do this, not in an emergency way, but in a way that, you know, to the best of our ability reflects kind of the standards that we here at the seminary want to achieve in our in our instruction. So, um, yeah, it's a tall order on a, on a kind of quick turnaround, but folks are, are really doing amazing work. In the meantime, I'm just here trying to, uh, you know, uh, hang out with the kids and, and keep them and their spirits up. It's, it's obviously a challenge for everyone in the family as we kind of just navigate what seems to be a very uncertain timetable around this whole thing. Yeah. You know, we're not going to hold you uh, to your answer here. Um, obviously, six to nine months from now, when you have a bit more time to reflect on this, and hopefully, when we're out of all this. But, but theologically, what are what are the implications of this pandemic? Hmm, it's a great question. Um, probably a lot of different ways to go with that question. I think. Uh, I mean, one thing I would say is true and, and certainly a timeless truth and, you know, for Christians and folks who care about the Christian tradition um, is suffering is a part of human life. And um, I think one of the things that, you know, as a historian and as someone with theological interests, I've been, I've, you know, kind of been observing is, um, you know, I think in the, in the United States, especially in kind of middle and upper class circles, um, there's always suffering happening, obviously, in the world and, and even here in the U.S. But sometimes in more affluent communities, it can be easy to feel protected from those uh, kinds of experiences. And so one of the things that maybe feels kind of distinctive about this is that the way in which um, even as the pandemic's being experienced inequitably, you know, uh, we know that black and brown communities are experiencing higher rates of infection, higher rates of death, um, and certainly the economic consequences have been experienced unequally as well. We, we also know that everybody's life has been disrupted in a really remarkable um, kind of way. And so um, it may be an opportunity for all of us, um, even those of us who live in communities where maybe suffering doesn't seem as pronounced um, on a kind of day in and day out basis to kind of check in with ourselves and, and our churches about, um, the role of suffering in our lives and what God calls us to in the midst of it. So, um, I don't know. I think that's one thing for, for American Christians, especially folks, like I said, from more affluent communities to kind of be holding on to right now. Yeah. I, I know you've certainly done some writing on this and others have, have talked about this theologically that, 
this pandemic has um, opened um, many people's eyes to the racial and economic divide within um, America. And a good bit of your work is on um, how the church or portions of the church, maybe it would be a more accurate term, has tried to come around these things uh, really uh, kind of in a hundred year period. In fact, that, you know, your new book coming yeah. out um, on earth that is in mm-hmm. heaven, special Christians and the fight for ending American inequality. You're covering this hundred year history between 1865 and yeah. 1965 uh, American Christians mm-hmm. fighting structural inequality. This is uh, men and women, Catholics and Protestants, black, white, and Latinx. And obviously, most of us know the likes of people like Washington Gladden and, and Walter Rauschenbusch. But, but you yeah. go a little deeper and broader. You're, you're trying to introduce us to, to little-known activists and preachers and politicians and theologians. Who, who are some of these people that, that we need to know and why? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess to just sort of zoom out for a second, I'll give you a few characters, but to zoom out, I mean, you're exactly right. That, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do with my, my current book project is, um, you know, I think if you talk to scholars, folks know the stories of kind of uh, Christians who have fought inequality in the American past. But a lot of times if you talk to kind of even really educated and in the know folks um, on the street today, I think you'll find that they know a lot about the religious right. Obviously, it weighs very significantly in the last generation of American politics. Um, but they know less about uh, an earlier tradition in American life, the one that I'm writing about. I call it social Christianity, which is a tradition that deeply shaped the nation, especially in the mid-20th century when you had these kind of massive faith-infused labor and civil rights movements that um, really reshaped the nation. And, and by the time that tradition, kind of social Christian tradition, crested in the 1960s and early 1970s, um, we were as equal as we have ever been. And in fact, as equal as we've been um, even in the generation since. Um, it's sort of the high watermark of, of American equality, so to speak. Um, so my book starts in the, in the generation after the Civil War, and it looks at uh, a whole host of kind of grassroots activists who were motivated in one way or another by their faith to get involved in social struggles and to fight for a more equal society. So, um, again, I don't expect uh, folks out there necessarily have heard these names, but um, I just finished a chapter earlier this summer on a woman named Mary McDowell, who was a, a woman who grew up in Methodism and uh, kind of in a reforming uh, branch of Methodism. She, as a young woman, moved to Evanston, Illinois, which was at that point in the 1870s and 80s and 90s, kind of the capital of first wave Christian feminism. It was the hub of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was this huge organization which would end up playing a really important role in kind of women's suffrage and, and whatnot. Um, but it was also a community, Evanston, um, and the kind of the reform movements that came out of it that was, uh, like I was saying a moment ago, a pretty affluent community. So kind of a, a lot of kind of do-gooder Christians who wanted to improve the world, but who also had a pretty good life themselves. And Mary McDowell, that was obviously the era of labor strife and deep inequality in American society, the first Gilded Age, historians call it. Um, you know, she started to feel very uncomfortable with kind of her own comfort. And uh, after, after the Pullman strike in 1894, which was this kind of massive nationwide strike, the uh, workers across the country basically went out um, on strike in sympathy with the workers who, uh, for the Pullman company who were in a dispute with their boss. Um, and as a result, the train systems across the entire country came grinding to a halt. 
uh, got everyone's attention. And most churches, including the ones in Evanston where McDowell lived, were deeply critical of the strike and of the workers who, who advocated for it. Um, but McDowell was sort of uncomfortable with, with that. And so she ended up kind of doing a little more exploration, looking into it further and realized, sure enough, there was another side of the story. These workers had some reasons for, uh, their interest in going out on strike. And within a few months of the strike ending, she was invited to take the helm of a new initiative in back of the yard. This was Chicago's stockyards district, one of the worst neighborhoods in America in that time you know, deeply poor, extremely polluted, um, you know, many, many middle-class Protestant Christians would certainly have seen it as a festival of crime and, uh, you know, what they called the dangerous classes, um, especially Catholic immigrants. Um, but McDowell was invited to take the helm of this new thing. The University of Chicago wanted to start a settlement house there um, to kind of, you know, get involved in the neighborhood. And uh, so McDowell, this kind of child of an affluent Christian home, um, in 1894, she picked up and moved to the south side of Chicago, and she lived the, the rest of her life there, almost four decades. And, um, you know, when she moved in, as you might imagine, a lot of her neighbors were like, what are you doing here? You know, why, why should we trust you? Are you a spy for the boss? Are you here to try to convert us? Are you, what are you, what are you, you know, are you here for us or are you here for some other uh, kind of reason? took a long time for her to earn their trust, but eventually she did. And along the way, she got involved with nearly every social reform movement you could imagine, the labor movement. She was deeply involved with uh, the, the founding of the Women's Trade Union League. She was involved with the founding of the NAACP. She was involved in civil rights campaigns, women's suffrage campaigns. So someone like Mary McDowell is someone who, uh, you know, no one knows her name today. Uh, but really a remarkable story of, of someone who was part of a new kind of Christian reform movement, one that wasn't satisfied with just sort of reaching down to help the poor, but found that it was important to kind of live among the poor, to get to know their struggles and to join with them in building kind of uh, community organizing capacity. So someone like Mary McDowell would be an example. I'm writing a chapter right now about a guy named Terrence Powderly, who, again, is someone that most lay people these days wouldn't recognize, but who was the the head of the largest labor organization in the country in the late 19th century was called the Knights of Labor, and Powderly was a an Irish Catholic who, um, a court, uh, you know, along the way, uh, sort of in the course of his activism, came face to face, confronted really uh, deep Catholic opposition to organized labor. A lot of times we think about the Catholic Church as being very pro labor, and it was eventually in the 20th century. But in the late 19th century, a lot of priests and bishops opposed labor unions. They saw them as secret societies that were sort of threats to the faithful. Um, and so Powderly, uh, in the course of building the largest labor organization of that time, an organization that not only organized white men, but also women and black workers, um, he not only sort of built uh, capacity through that organization, but he also um, played a massive role in changing the Catholic Church's mind about organized labor. And it's really out of his work that you get um, Rerum Novarum, this encyclical in 1891 that was the kind of uh, cornerstone of what we think of as Catholic pro-labor teaching in the modern era. So um, now the first part of the book really looks at these kind of grassroots activists who laid the groundwork and really built leverage and pressure on the churches to um, get more engaged with social questions. And that's when you get, in the early 20th century, uh, folks like Rauschenbusch, who are more household names. So in my in my story, Rauschenbusch is still important, um, but he appears more as a popularizer and someone who was trying to convince other middle class folks of the significance of 
social Christian ideas and movements, um, and not as kind of the originator of those ideas. And then my book kind of extends into the mid-20th century. I think a lot of times people have written about the social gospel or social Christianity as though it ended after World War One, but I think reality is you can find all sorts of linkages from the movements of the late 19th uh, and early 20th century to the, again, those massive kind of faith-infused labor and civil rights movements of the mid-20th century. So linkages to Martin Luther King Jr., to Cesar Chavez, to all sorts of other activists. So that's the that's the kind of scope of things, is, is stretching from civil war to civil rights and thinking about uh, a tradition in American Christian life of Christians who have seen the fight against inequality as really a core part of what it means to be a believer. Um, they changed the church and they really changed American society during that long century. Mm. Let's talk about the egalitarian focus of this movement, whether it was class, race, yeah. ethnicity, or gender. The social Christian movement was fighting for equal rights. Now, obviously, this was not a unified movement. Not all parties were involved yeah. uh, with what we associate with this movement. We're, we're striving for the equal rights for all of those categories, class, race, yeah. ethnicity, gender. However, there there's some overlapping networks and common threads that that cultivated this desire for egalitarianism. What, what can you point us to as the base of this theological awakening and, and motivation behind this movement? Yeah. Well, I think the egalitarianism really comes, and this is why my, my book begins in at the grassroots, um, a kind of Christian egalitarianism, in my view, isn't first and foremost an intellectual conviction. It's not first and foremost a kind of uh, the property of the middle class. It's It really comes out of the experience of poor and oppressed communities. And so, the people who have these intuitions that, you know, God's on the side of the poor and the lowly, um, Jesus is a carpenter, uh, et cetera, they're folks who experienced hardship in their lives and um, didn't need to be convinced of these things. They, they in many cases, weren't uh, professionally trained theologians, but they had profoundly theological intuitions. And so you can see that in um, the labor movement of the late 19th century, you can see that in the work of someone like Ida B. Wells, who's uh, a deeply devout Christian anti-lynching activist who courageously um, goes on the on the campaign against lynching starting in the early 1890s, um, a great threat to her own life. Um, you know, these are folks, again, who didn't need to be convinced of it. it, it you know, it's 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 really coming out of their experience. And if you look at the churches themselves, I mean, many of the kind of earliest um, proponents of social Christianity on the inside within these institutions are folks, ministers in many cases, who had direct contact with uh, communities of poor and oppressed people. So folks like Walter Rauschenbusch, who started his ministry in a desperately poor part of New York City, um, Hell's Kitchen, which is you know now a kind of fabulously wealthy part of Midtown, but in the late 19th century was a poor immigrant community. And it was really there burying babies and the mothers who bore them um, that Rauschenbusch was converted in his own eyes to see the implications of the gospel in a new way. Now, as you rightly point out, um, we shouldn't imagine that I, I actually tend not to call social Christianity a movement because that sort of tends to imply a kind of cohesion and a kind of, uh, conscious working together that certainly has not been the case tragically in the, in modern American life. Um, we know that 
you know, too often folks who have held up equality as a value to be, um, you know, sought, sought after have not fought together. And so you can see someone like Rauschenbusch, for example, who was one of the most um, vociferous advocates on, on the part of poor workers in the early 20th century United States. He had almost nothing to say about the plight of black people under Jim Crow. He had almost nothing to say about lynching in, in the course of his entire career. Um, so, you know, you can see those kind of slippages and, and fractures in kind of Christian, social Christian consciousness. At the same time, we know that uh, Rauschenbusch was an important figure in the intellectual development of Martin Luther King. So that's, I, I sort of think of, of, of social Christianity as a tradition, the word that's a little more capacious in my view, something that allows us to think about forms of connection that didn't always involve like seeing each other as being on the same team. But you can still see the ways in which people are drawing on one another and learning from one another, even sometimes when there wasn't uh, the kind of deeper solidarity across lines of difference that we would have hoped might have materialized. Um, you can see this too. And so in the case of someone like Cesar Chavez, who in the 1970s in California is quoting papal encyclicals that someone like Terence Powderly was fighting for in the 1880s. Um, did Chavez see Powderly as an important, you know, prefigurement of his work? Maybe, or maybe not, probably not. Um, nevertheless, uh, the legacies of Powderly's work became really important in the advocacy and activism of someone like Cesar Chavez. So I think there's something uh, that's a little more, a kind of a little looser than a, what we would call a movement, but nevertheless a kind of important threads and ties, ideas, networks, people. Um, and you start to dig down and you find things like, you know, Mary McDowell uh, at the settlement house that she ran in, in the back of the yards in the 1890s is constantly hosting Ida B. Wells for talks about uh, the plight of, of black Chicagoans. So, I mean, there's all sorts of kind of networks and connections that I hope will come out in the book um, that people will be able to appreciate, even as they also see the ways in which equality uh, could also, you know, could often sound like this beautiful universal value. And when you dig down into the details, you realize that um, in many cases, some people's equality was held to be more important than other people's equality, if that makes sense. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experienced and highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Yeah, and and, and certainly your work um, kind of helps uncover, um, and I think in a in a uh, a positive way to for people to see the diversity of Christian tradition and, and thought. And certainly, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a very distinct break between conservative evangelicalism and this movement. You know, historically, evangelicals yeah. have been politically anti-union, anti-socialism, and the like. Take us a little deeper there into that, that break uh, within conservative yeah. Uh, uh, evangelicalism and this tradition when it comes to uh, viewing some of these issues. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, what I would want to do there in part is say that actually, especially in the late 19th century, a lot of evangelicals are on board with these movements. So, I mean, my first book, Union Made, is a story about the labor movement in the churches in the late 19th century. And the reality, I mean, is that many evangelicals played key roles in the founding of the early labor movement. Um, so it's not I mean, I, I want to kind of get away from the idea that social Christianity is the province of kind of uh, theological liberals. Certainly, there are many theological liberals who are social Christians, but I think you can also uh, find a lot of folks we might think of as evangelical or more traditional in their, in their theological convictions um, involved in some of the movements that I'm, I'm, I'm writing about in this new book. Um, now that that what what is certainly the case is is that in the last generation. So, if you think about the kind of rise of the religious right, um, a lot of my colleagues have done some excellent work in the last ten or fifteen years, trying to understand where this thing come from, where where does the religious right come from, and there's there's a number of important answers to that question. But one answer to that question is that it came out of a kind of backlash to the New Deal starting as early as the 1930s um, and building in the 40s and 50s as you move into the Cold War, as uh, both in the church but also in kind of the corporate world, um, you kind of get these new partnerships and alliances. Uh, Darren Dochuk's excellent book, Anointed with Oil, talks about kind of the partnerships between big oil and uh, different uh, kind of American Christian organizations and and you have the rise through these partnerships of a kind of gospel of free enterprise, we might call it, um, which a lot of American evangelicals are going to kind of um, be drawn into the orbit of. But this gospel of free enterprise saw, uh, you know, a kind of libertarian um, vision of of the good or whatnot, and and, and you know you can kind of see a, a sort of affinity in the the logics of kind of modern evangelicalism with its emphasis on the individual and individual salvation with the kind of logics of this more economically libertarian way of thinking about uh, the social and political good, um, you know, both kind of emphasizing, again, you know, the individual as the centerpiece of the moral universe as opposed to uh, the collective or the structural or whatnot. So, um Part of what you know, I would say in, in response to your question is that you know, early in the, the period that my book is looking at, that late 19th and even the early 20th century, maybe even in the mid-20th century, you can find a lot of evangelicals who can kind of get behind um, structural approaches to inequality. But um, there's a lot of work that goes into promoting this other thing, this kind of gospel of free enterprise, and certainly the fights over civil rights in the 1950s and 1960s um, pull even more kind of white evangelicals into the orbit of, of this gospel of free enterprise as the, the welfare state that social Christians had fought for opens up to black and brown people in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, a lot of, of white Christians became a lot more nervous about it and, and became even in some cases vocal opponents of it. Um, so it's a complicated story, uh, but it, it's sort of a, what I would say is that evangelicalism, you know, is a sort of fluid and difficult to define thing uh, that can, in fact, lead to socially progressive, uh, even radical movements and organizations. Though in the last 
generation or so, it's been uh, less common for that to happen because of a, a real intentional organization of evangelicals uh, into a different kind of uh, Christian tradition. Well, egalitarianism and certainly socialism is a term that continue to to scare people, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And this, and this anti-socialism banter reigns among conservative evangelicals today. And the irony is that many don't seem to be anti-socialist when it comes to things like, you know, I don't know, Social Security, Medicare, COVID-19 <laughs> stimulus checks. Um, you know, yeah, the Bible, yeah, yeah. Bible has some socialist implications. Just read the the second and fourth chapter of the book of Acts and tell me what dynamics you see at play there. So help yeah, our, yeah. Help our uh, listeners maybe broaden their understanding of Christian socialism. Mm. Um, give, yeah. a, give us yeah. a... Well. Yeah. So uh, socialism obviously got a really bad rap during the Cold War. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of um, uh, propaganda and concerted mobilization on the part of the United States government against, you know, to kind of frame an ideological battle against the Soviet Union um, in terms of capitalism versus socialism or communism. Um, we know that for throughout that period and even earlier into the 20th century, Terms like socialist and communist were used to describe a whole range of folks who may or may not have actually subscribed to those views themselves. So basically anyone who advocated civil rights in the, in the mid-20th century was uh, under investigation by the FBI and oftentimes kind of reviled as a socialist or communist, including people like Martin Luther King, who himself actually was, uh, in his own conviction, uh, he thought of himself as a democratic socialist. So I think he's an interesting case study that uh, kind of opens up a different vantage onto what we mean when we talk about Christian socialism, which is a, a kind of, again, a tradition in American, modern American life with a, a really long history. If you go back into the post-Civil War years, lots of uh, working class Christians are, are really in, interested and engaged in um, fundamentally rethinking economic life. They're, they're really asking these kind of deep questions about whether capitalism with its sort of dog-eat-dog ethos is really compatible with uh, a, a Christian tradition that teaches that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So in the late 19th century, you have a lot of initially working class and eventually middle class Christians really thinking deeply about the compatibility of capitalism and Christianity and calling themselves Christian socialists, that thing, that, that terminology meant a lot of different kinds of things. Um, it often didn't mean a kind of uh, what, what's often called scientific socialism, kind of Marxian, uh, you know, pro-revolution sort of approach to things. It often meant uh, these were folks who favored cooperatives, they favored uh, trade unions, they favored um, different sorts of creative reorganizations of American, you know, economic and social life that didn't necessarily involve like, you know, the state commandeering the means of production or something like that. Um, you get, uh, you know, well into the 20th century, lots of Christians who are thinking, again, uh, in more kind of fundamental creative ways about economic life. So someone like King, um, you know, several generations after the kind of uh, heyday, late 19th century heyday of Christian socialism. Someone like Martin Luther King Jr. is uh, on the other side of major civil rights breakthroughs in 1964 and 1965. King starts to say, look, it's not enough to just be able to 
stay at a hotel if you can't afford to take your family on vacation. It's not enough to be able to buy a hamburger, you know, excuse me, to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger. And he turns his attention in the last years of his life to these fundamental questions of economic democracy. Um, And it was on those grounds. He didn't often uh, sort of wave the red flag and call himself a socialist because he was smart and knew that in the context of Cold War America, that would backfire on him. But um, privately, he did talk about himself as a democratic socialist, by which he meant something like, you know, the fundamental goods of a human life, um, education, uh, housing, food, these things should be universally available in a society like ours, um, which is as wealthy as it has been over the last couple of generations. Um, King saw that as kind of an extension, as, as uh, just as fundamental to the movement for civil rights as uh, the breaking down of kind of Jim Crow apartheid laws. And so he died uh, actually marching with sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and, and, you know, that's an important part of his legacy that often drops out in contemporary conversations about civil rights, but many of the folks who fought for fraud against Jim Crow were also deeply committed to, again, what we might broadly speaking call Christian socialist ideals, which is not the bugaboo that it's often appeared in, uh, you know, anti-Soviet propaganda. Well, let's talk a little bit deeper about something you've raised there, which is uh, the wealth gap. You know, um, we've yeah. been here before and the Gilded Age and many times before the names uh, we know them, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan and Ford. They personify this absurd level and percentage of wealth compared to the rest of the population. Uh, hmm. Today, the names are Buffett, Bezos and Gates. And these are uh, three, uh, these three alone <laughs> own more uh, wealth than the entire bottom half of the American population combined. That's a total of 160 million people. So obviously the, the Christian social movement had something to say during the Gilded Age about the wealth gap. How, how should Christians be addressing uh, economic thought and practice today? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's different ways of thinking about inequality. I mean, one one way, and sometimes there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, a kind of um, red herring, I think, thrown out that um, folks who want, you know, equality or to fight for a more equal society, they want um, everyone to have exactly the same amount of goods or something like that. Um, you know, and, and there can be a kind of, people will dismiss the numbers that you just threw out and say, well, you know, yeah, but once you dig down, okay, so you got a few billionaires or whatever, but once you dig down, um, it starts to look, you know, a lot better on the ground, on the ground. And I think, you know, the reality is, um, that I think one thing that Christians might, you know, grapple with in terms of thinking about inequality, what a lot of the folks that I'm writing about were fighting for was again, for, uh, us to be a society, you know, in the, depending on the moment, depending on the, the movement, people described it, you know, differently in terms of a, a Christianized social order, or a beloved community or whatnot. But a society where, um, especially in a, in a society as affluent as the United States, um, where your access to medical care, your access to um, a roof over your head, your access to regular uh, food and an ability to re- readily feed your children. Those things are not dependent upon the job you happen to have. They're not dependent upon, um, you know, where you happen to be born. And there's all sorts of indicators all around us all the time that, um, 
We live in uh, one of the most affluent societies the world has ever seen, and it's a society where um, there, there are millions of people who are food insecure. It's a society where people die, you know, six-year-olds die uh, because a cavity doesn't get treated because their parents don't have dental insurance, and where they for, therefore defer care and defer care and defer care. Maybe they, don't, maybe they make just uh, a little bit too much to qualify for Medicaid, uh, but not enough to buy their own health insurance on the exchanges. And so they put that off and eventually, you know, the bacteria leaks into the bloodstream and, and the six-year-old dies. I mean, those are the kinds of things that in a society like the one we live in, I think the, the social Christian tradition would say that's just unacceptable. Um, it's, it's really impossible to, to morally justify it. So I think um, at some level thinking about you know, we often talk about um, the United States as a land of opportunity or whatnot, but we also know that the census tract into which you're born is a really good predictor of your outcomes. Um, it can pretty readily tell us your likelihood of going to college. It can readily tell us the likelihood of, uh, you know, what your income may or may not be, what your lifespan may or may not be. And we know that in major metropolitan areas across this country, there are 20 years or more swings and life expectancy based on the census tract in which you live. Um, that's extraordinary, again, and, and, and those are, are kinds of ways of thinking about the problem of inequality that I think go even deeper than just uh, the kind of eye-popping, jaw-dropping numbers about Bezos and, and Gates and whatnot, is, is how can we live in a society that has 20-plus uh, years in life expectancy gaps and think about ourselves as in any way living into our kind of vision of, of equality. Um, so those are, those are kinds of uh, measures, and I think, you know, for a lot of Christians um, in the last generation, concerns about life have been really important. And, and I think, as, as I talk to folks, I mean, I think inequality is a life issue. And, and, and you know, again, pull up the maps of, of life expectancy and census tracts, and you can see very sort of viscerally depicted for you the ways in which um, an unequal society is one in which some lives matter a lot more than others. And um, I think that the Christian tradition hopefully we can come together and say, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how um, our Bible teaches us uh, to live in the world. And um, that's, that's, I guess, how I think about these issues. And I think it's the way that uh, for all their brokenness, um, you know, a lot of the actors, historical actors that I'm writing about also thought about them. As you alluded to, there's, there was certainly tumult in their era you know, so many uh, issues and struggles and injustices that they were seeking to to rectify. And, and the tumult of, of our era, era is very real, uh, whether it be mm. through the Black Lives uh, Matter movement, the Occupy Wall Street, or, or the Me Too movement. Uh, the dissatisfaction with the status quo is very real. People are ready for change. Mm. And, and the church has obviously been a part of these kinds of movements in the past. So how should the church be involved in what's happening within American society today? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of anxiety right now in institutional church circles about declining um, affiliation. And, and I think rightfully so. I mean, we, we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years, the number of Americans who are affiliating with Christian denominations plummeting in kind of unprecedented fashion. And, um, 
you know, I think there's one way to look at those numbers and to panic and to, you know, wonder what do we do, what do we do, and try to come up with uh, sort of the latest sort of snazzy uh, approach to winning people back. But I think actually the question you just asked, a question about how should the churches engage in the midst of the tumult of our moment, and this question about um, affiliation, which has really commanded church leaders' attention in the last decade, I think they're actually really profoundly linked. And um, the drop in affiliation is coming, especially we know among younger folks, 40 and under, who in many cases are fed up with institutions of all different kinds, including Christian ones, who, you know, institutions which they see as um, corrupt or not up to the challenges of the day. And in many, many cases, it's hard not to say that they they're right in their in their assessment. Um, I I think that you know as you look around us, we see that um, institutions are failing us um, all over the all over the place. And I think we can see that in kind of the dysfunction of the way even that the nation has responded to the pandemic. I mean that we have been almost uniquely bad in our ability to navigate this thing, um, and and with no small part due to the fact that institutions are letting us down. But I think um, there is an opportunity for the churches in the midst of this tumult to um, to really get engaged and to really throw themselves into it. And I think the way to win people's uh, interest and allegiance is not through uh, better marketing. I think it's through um, a kind of deep faithfulness. And I think if if young people in their 20s and 30s and 40s see churches um, really kind of plunging into the thick of these deep, deep challenges that we face, not running away from them, not trying to gloss over them, not trying to, um, you know, just sort of uh, throw out platitudes about um, the gospel without sort of deeply engaging in the challenges facing our neighbors each and every day. I think if young people see that, they will be inspired to participate and to get engaged with these institutions. And my hope is that young people will do that regardless. But I hope that um, church leaders are seeing this moment as an opportunity to to really kind of be recentered in what it means to be faithful. And I think um, the the book that I'm writing is a story. It's a it's a story that I think is full of kind of uh, lessons and inspiration for church leaders today. Uh, How do you keep your institutions vibrant? How do you keep them engaged, uh, deeply connected to listening to the voices of the faithful who are calling the churches back to, Hey, what, you know, what does it mean to to follow Jesus? Partly that's going to mean have a lot to do with our kind of uh, witness in the world and the way that we want to live in the world. Um, so I, I hope that um, as as churches navigate this kind of very challenging social, cultural, political moment, um, they can call people to a deeper faithfulness and a costly discipleship and a way of, of thinking about injustice as uh, an offense to the gospel and to God's will for the world. And I think if they can do that and really call people into the struggle for American democracy, the struggle for a a more just world, I think you'll find that uh, young people, it won't be hard to get young people interested in um, what they're doing. Well, you're a historian. Uh, So what are the historical implications looking back of 
when the church chose not to act in moments like this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think, I think, you know, you can see, we live in a society where, um, people's affiliations with church and, and whatnot really are voluntary. And, uh, certainly the, the era that I've written a lot about kind of the, the first gilded age, the late 19th century was an era where, um, there was just profound anxiety about people leaving the church. And, um, I think whether you're talking about uh, black churches in northern cities during the Great Migration, what we know about those churches is the churches that adapted and um, fought to meet the needs of poor black southern migrants, um, they're the ones that thrived. And the ones that kind of clung to their kind of middle class respectability often faltered and failed. Um, Same thing with uh, these kind of questions around economic justice. I mean, if you look at churches in the late 19th century that um, remain stubbornly opposed to organized labor and to the cause of working people. Um, shockingly, uh, working people didn't attend them. And it turns out that most people are working people. And so uh, those churches, you know, eventually moved out of cities and tried to forge a, a, you know, a new life in the suburbs. And some of them succeeded and many of them failed. So, I mean, I, I would be hesitant to make any you know, too strong of a connection between faithfulness and numbers. I think that's a, that can be a dangerous way to go, but I will say that, um, you know, <laughs> what I want to say about this, I mean, I think a lot of times people are drawn to churches that, that preach an easy gospel. So again, I don't want, I don't want to overdraw these lines, but I, I think just for good Christian reasons, um, as church leaders think about this moment, you know, even thinking beyond numbers, I think numbers is important, but, um, you know, people, and I, and I guess, for, you know, maybe tying this back to young people, the young people that I encountered here at the seminary that I encountered at the university where I was teaching before, um, they're deeply morally serious folks who are very frustrated with institutional churches, um, but love Jesus and want to be engaged. And I think, uh, you know, those are, those are folks that will be drawn to churches and church or, uh, you know, Christian organizations that are taking, uh, the kind of issues of justice really seriously. I guess you alluded to it there, but, you know, maybe, maybe we end on a more hopeful note, uh, historically speaking, um, what has been the implications for churches who have chosen to act and to be a part of movements like this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think one of the things you can do as churches who have been part of of these movements is, is uh, create a legacy. And, um, you know, whether we always appreciate that legacy or not, uh, you know, I think about churches that were involved in civil rights and you think about, I mean, we just, we just, um, John Lewis just passed a, couple, a few weeks ago and, and watching his funeral uh, was a reminder of these folks who have left a legacy for later generations. I had the privilege to be in Selma in 2015 when um, it was the 50th anniversary of the March for Voting Rights that Lewis and others were involved with. And, um, you know, it, it was remarkable to be there and to see these saints gathered who were there involved in the movement in the 1960s um, and the rousing charge from William Barber and others to see this not as a 
commemoration, but as a consecration to an ongoing work. And so, I mean, I think I think that the the payoff in some ways for churches that that get engaged in these in this work is that they can um, feel that they've been faithful to to God and and to God's call upon them in in the world and. Um, to leave a legacy, a life-giving legacy for those that come later. And I think I've certainly uh, benefited from all the, the stories of the people that I'm writing about. I'm, I'm inspired in many cases by them, again, for all their brokenness, the ways that they um, inspire me. Um, and and I think, you know, whether it's civil rights or labor issues or, or women's rights, um, whatever it may be, you know, you can you can sort of see in the stories of those folks who have um, been faithful, often in very costly ways, uh, it kind of points the way forward for us today. And I think that's the the gift of their witness is, is it's an inspiration and a legacy that can help us to live more faithfully as we, we move forward. So when does the book come out? It's a great question. Uh, everyone wants to know the answer to this. No, uh, I, I hope, you know, I hope I'm on sabbatical this year and hope to finish a draft of it this year. So uh, usually it's about a year from when you turn in a manuscript to when the book actually comes out. So hopefully uh, about two years from now, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. It takes a long time, you know, we kind of traversing this much territory to really get it right. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. So hopefully in a couple of years, it'll uh, be in folks' hands. Well, it's not like you've got, you know, anything else going on, you know, global pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of the challenges right now is getting into archives. I mean, obviously we depend on uh, access to not everything's digitized. There's a growing number of stuff that is, but a lot is still not digitized. So that's going to be one of the tricks this year is hopefully I can get into some of these archives and uh, finish up some of the research I have yet to do. Well, if you want to stay connected with Heath, visit heathcarter.com. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Heath W. Carter. Uh, while you cannot go out and purchase On Earth as is in Heaven, you can go pick up some of his other works wherever books are sold. Um, Heath, thank you for reminding us of where we have come from and giving us hope to see that we can be a part of bringing the kingdom on earth as is in heaven. Thanks so much, Andy. Great to chat. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.